everyone. Doing well today? Yeah, all right, good to see you. Listen, some exciting things are happening at 10.30 that we get to be a precursor of today. At 10.30, let me just describe a little bit about what's gonna be happening in this, this room. There is a family, a mom and her two kids that have come to a place in their life where they say, um, we, we've come to see that Jesus is everything to us. He, he's the answers we've been looking for. He, he, he is our hope, our life song, our salvation, and all three are gonna come up here, mom and then her two kids, and get baptized. There, there's another family that's gonna be here, and they have a uh, six-month-old right now. And they too have kind of had the stirring in their heart, and God's been working and doing some things, and they've come to a place of saying, this is our firstborn, and we would do anything for her. And yet, God, we want you to become greater and, and, and we to become less, so, so here she is. We, 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 we give her to you. We want her to be baptized, and we want you to be the one doing the work in her soul. And there's a few more families that are coming at 1030 today. And they've been baptized once upon a time, but they've come to this place here at Fellowship of Faith, and they've come to realize that, that baptism is not a one-time event, but it's something that's meant to mark you and move you and stir in you every day. And so they're coming back up here to kind of make a profession of faith in Christ and to say, yes, we not only want this, we still want this, and we're going to mark them with water. And it's just a taste of, of some of the people that are coming forward uh, in the next service to come. And I remember growing up, and baptisms and things like this would come along in, in, in the flow pattern, and ministers and people would always make such a big deal out of them. And growing up in, in, in a church situation where I saw them regularly, I kind of understood up here why it was a good idea, okay? But, but kind of at a practical level, kind of in a, in a just day-to-day, -day, when you're sitting here and you're watching it, sometimes it's hard to see why it's such a big deal. Because after all, I've seen someone get wet before. How about you? And, and it can be very easy in watching something that seems really, quite honestly, so mundane. Why is this so central? And so that's what I want to talk about this morning with you uh, for a little bit. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to pull out a chair Bible, please. And I'd like you to open up to Exodus chapter 30. Because what I would like to do in talking about baptism and why it's so important and why it's so central is to look at where it came from. Because I've personally come to find it's, it's kind of hard to know where you are if you don't know where you've been. And so what we're going to do this morning is trace where does this thing that we call baptism, this practice called baptism, come from, and how might that kind of give new insight and new perspective as to what God is doing here and why it's so important. So Exodus chapter 30. Here we go. If you'd look at, with me at verse 17. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. 
Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. Now, when God says to do something and says not once but twice so that you will not die, it's always kind of good to listen. Would you agree? This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. Okay, let's kind of picture this. Let's walk through this a little bit and get a handle on what's going on. Exodus 30 is plunged deeply into a long expanse of the Bible that no one ever likes to read because it goes on for about 30 chapters of descriptions just like that, telling you how to make different furniture, different articles, different things for this place called the Tent of Meeting. Okay, storyline. Israelites are in Egypt. They're enslaved. God raises up Moses. God brings them out of Egypt. We've seen the story, right? The Israelites are now in the wilderness, and the entire thrust of what is going on in the storyline is that God came down on a mountain to meet with Israel. And when he did, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was roars, there were, there were shouts. It was scary, scary stuff. Think of a volcano. You ever see a picture of one erupting? Think, think about having to go up into that volcano while it's exploding in your face and go, oh, that's where God wants to meet me. You're getting the idea here, right? So the Israelites panic. They send Moses to go up. And what God tells Moses is that he is going to come down from the mountain and want to live in the presence amidst his people. Now, at first glance, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, after all, who doesn't want God living with them? But if your perception of God is an exploding volcano, and stuff like that is what's going to happen if God is in your presence, suddenly it starts to take an, a, a new twist, doesn't it? And think about it this way. What would it be like for God to be with you every moment of every day? And what would it be like for you to be fully aware of that presence? And what would it be like to be fully aware while you're fully aware of his presence, of every motive, every inclination of the heart, every misdeed, everything you've done, everywhere you've been, while standing on holy ground. It's interesting, we talk so much about wanting God to come near, but I think at some part and some level, many of us actually are slightly afraid of what God coming near might actually mean. And if you can kind of enter into that, that, that world right now, you're starting to see what it was like for these early Israelites. So how is God going to come and dwell in their presence? Well, they said, we better build God a tent. God needs a place. We need a place to set up, and it's this tent of meeting that Exodus 30 just talked about. So what they decided to do is they built this gigantic tent, and God's presence would be focused and concentrated within one of the layers of this gigantic tent that as the Israelites then moved around, they could pick the thing up, and God can kind of just move with them. You get the idea of why it's a tent and not a house, right? And so God said, do you want to find me? Well, that's where I'm at. I'm at the tent, right there, right in the middle. Come find me there. 
But God is holy and people are not. And the question remained, how does the unholy and the holy mix? Now, the, what this has to do with baptism comes down to this, this basin, this bronze basin. So here's what I want you to picture. Imagine up here that this is the tent, okay? And we as the people of Israel are all kind of out here, right? And as you would walk up to the tent, there would be this bronze basin. Bronze basin. All right? And what did it say? That when Aaron and his sons, the priests of Israel, would come to basically minister before the Lord on behalf of the people, they would have to wash their hands and their feet to make themselves clean before going on up. So far, so good. Now, part of this had an immensely practical uh, application. Because when you think of what the tent of meeting was like, you have to get in your mind not so much church, but slaughterhouse. All right? How do you worship at the tabernacle? You kill an animal. And how many animals do you kill? Well, count up the Israelites. Do the math. And so every day what you have to imagine is person upon person upon... It's like Chicago stockyards, all right? They just keep coming and coming and coming. And, and there would be these, these, these utensils and these tools and these things built to just kind of even contain the rivers of blood that would flow out. It was dirty, gory work. Hey, kids, let's go to church today, right? Scar them for life. This is the idea that you have to get going on. And so imagine if you're the priest all day long sitting there in your Birkenstocks and with your hand and you're stomping around in blood and you're working the animals and you're doing the sacrifices, you are coated from head to toe. Now you ever have this moment where your kids are playing outside, it's dirty out, it's been raining, and you can, they got like mud all over their hands and they start going for like light switches, they start going for the remote, they start going for stuff like that and you can follow the trail. You, parents, you ever have one of these moments you know what I'm talking about? All right, well, imagine this with the priests in the temple. You don't be tracking blood all over this tent, right? So at one level, washing your hands and your feet was immensely practical. Are you with me? And yet, there seemed to be something deeper resonating under the surface of it. Because as later writers would describe the events taking place, it started to carry a certain symbolic cleansing as well. A deeper cleansing, if you will, than just the grime on your hands and your feet. It almost became something like this. Lord, forgive me and clean me of what I've done with these hands. Forgive me and clean me of where I've been with these feet. Because the cleanliness that God is interested in is not out here as much as it is in here and in here. Make sense? And from this developed a tradition, a ritual, a way of doing life where the priests as they would come forward began not only just cleansing their hands and their feet, but they would start to do things like this as well. Lord, not only forgive me what I've done with these hands, Lord, not only cleanse me of where I've been with these feet, Lord, 
cleanse what I've thought with this mind. Lord, cleanse what I felt with this heart. And they developed a name, a term for it. It became known as something called mikveoth in, in, in Jewish circles. And whenever they would come forward, they would cleanse their hands and their feet, their hearts and their minds, saying, Lord, I need to be clean to come into your presence. Now, this went on for several hundred years. Then 587 BC rolls around, and something happens. There's a new superpower on the block in the ancient Near East. They go by the name of Babylon. They see ripe pickings at this, 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 temp, this tabernacle that, that had since turned temple, and the wealth and the power and, and some of the grandeur that, that it had contained. And they come in, and they said, we want that. We want to get rich. We want to be powerful. And the Babylonians come in, and they raise this temple to the ground. This bronze basin, this huge bronze thing, we could smelt that sucker. There's some bucks in that in the black market. Let's take that thing. And while we're doing that, let's take all that other stuff in the temple, too. And they carried it all away. They raised the thing to the ground. They sent the people into exile. And this goes so much beyond just burning down the church. Because for them, God was present not in any temple. God was present in that temple. And if that temple is no longer there, then what does that mean? Does that mean that God abandoned us? Does that mean that God is angry with us and he's judging us? Does that mean that God is sick and tired and he took off so we let something like this happen? You ever ask these questions in the whys of life? Might it even mean that our God isn't strong enough? And who we thought he is, he might not really be. Is our God even real? And those early Israelites wrestled with this kind of thing. As they found themselves thousands of miles away from home in a foreign land, away from their God, under what they perceived to be judgment, impotency, non-existence, lack of compassion, or whatever else it might be. And as the Israelites processed through this, thought about this, and as God continued to reveal things to help them interpret the times, if you will, he began to breathe into them and to speak into them and talk to them about things like the washing of hands and feet and hearts and minds in new ways. And these people of Israel, they would continue to gather, they would continue to worship, they would continue to, to, to gather in these places, albeit far from a temple, going, do you remember the way that God saved? Do you remember what God said when? Do you remember that God invited us to, and they would pray, and they would worship, and they would seek his hand? And do you know what happened? God took something evil, and out of it sprang good. Because as they found themselves scattered among people who had no idea who this God was, people started to notice. People started to notice that there's something weird about these Jews who live over here. They don't live like we do. They don't, they don't act like we do. And some of them, in the context of that, started to say, why do they do it? Why do they even risk giving their lives 
for it. Some of them even began to say, I want it. Because I too have come to see that this God that you worship is in fact the one true God and greater than anything the gods of this world have to offer. And as these pagans from the foreign lands would begin to come forward, the Jews began to ask themselves questions like, what do we do? They're not Jewish. They're not part of the line of Abraham. What do we do? How does this work? How do they come into the presence of an of a holy God when they might be unholy. And I remember back to some of these ceremonies they used to do. These things that, that, that spoke to them saying, you know, if we're to come into the presence of God, we need to be clean. And so out of it developed something. There's your buddy down the street or this neighbor that you've met or someone who's connected with you that wasn't part of, of the people of God wanted to become a part of the people of God. They too wanted to come into water to be clean. And they started inventing these, these immersion tubs, these baths, these pools that they would connect to, to the synagogue. They would connect to these places and they would come and they'd say, as you come to, to take upon you this teaching, this worldview, this life, this way of being, they'd say, come into the water. Come into the water, all of you, because more than just my hands and my feet, my mind and my heart need to be clean. All of me needs to be clean. And we find ourselves with this at the time of Jesus. Now, do you still have your Bibles out? Go to Matthew chapter 3. Because in the context of this, we meet another guy, another one called a prophet of God. His name is John, and he was out baptizing. And if you're looking at Matthew 3, follow along with me. It says this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as a father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
So what you have to imagine is this, this wild man, this crazy prophet, his name is John, and he's out at the Jordan, and he is immersing people in water. He is baptizing them. He is not inventing something new. He is carrying on something of old that began with the priests, that got developed later, that, that was something that who would do? The Gentiles. The people who weren't Jews that wanted to become Jews who would come to the water. John finds himself in this stream, but did you catch it? Who is he baptizing? The Jews. Now, you've got to kind of wrap your mind around a little bit how revolutionary this actually was. Because the people that were being baptized were these Gentiles, these people that weren't part of the line of Abraham. They were the people that didn't belong. The people who weren't given an assurance or a promise. The people who didn't have an in with God. A good Jew would say, of course, why do I need to be baptized? I'm a child of Abraham. God made a covenant with me. I'm good. I'm in. What do I got to worry about, right? Those guys out there, those Gentiles whom God wants to judge, those are the ones who've got to get clean. But what is John doing? He's looking out at the very people of God himself, and he says it's not just about them getting clean. It's about you getting right with God, too. And he's out there by the Jordan, and he's baptizing Jews, saying repentance is not just something for them. Repentance is something for you. You know, I, I've seen this done. I, I'm not going to do it here because I don't want to put anyone on the spot. But I've seen this done where, where, where people walk into a room and, and just try to get a feel for where people are in their congregation, what their faith background might be, and, and what their traditions and histories might be. And I'll often ask a question like this. Now, I don't want you to do it, but I want you to mentally do it, okay? I'm going to ask you the question, and I want you to mentally raise your hand. All right? Who here was born a Christian? All right? And oftentimes when, when I've done this or seen this done in the past, especially in a church kind of situation, generally more than half the hands kind of go up. I want to ask you, did you raise a mental hand? And if you did, I need to tell you right now, put that mental hand down, because no one is born a Christian. I don't care what church your grandpa was a pastor of. I don't care if you were baptized at eight days old and have been in the church every day since. I don't care what some relatives gave money to do. I don't care what mission, you know, streak runs in your family. No one is born a Christian. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says no one seeks God. No one is righteous, not even one. The Bible says we're sinners. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Broken and distant and separated from God by birth. See, what John's message was all about is that getting right with God is not just for some of us. It's for all of us. No matter how churchy or religious, 
or Christian lineage we might be. And people would come to the river and John would immerse them and say, in your sins you stand under judgment for God, but God loves you. And God doesn't want you to be distant and broken and unclean before him. He would say, repent. It basically means turn. Turn to God. Turn to God, for he is gracious and compassionate in a way that knows no bounds. It's like John was standing by the river saying, guys, you got to get right with him. And what's so exciting about what's going to happen at 1030 today and what makes it such a big deal is that there are these people who have come to a place in their life that says, I've got to get right with him. I want to be right with him. I want to be clean. People who, who have said, I, I realize who I am and, and what kind of condition that I'm in and what that means in my relationship with God. And people who have come to realize that as unpopular as it might seem, the judgment of God is real. But people who have likewise come to realize that God is gracious and desires to judge no one and send a son to die for you and me so that we can be clean. And what's going to happen here at 1030 is these people are going to come forward and they're going to proclaim that. They're going to state it. They're going to own it verbally. Then I say, God, I want you to, I want you to make me clean. I want to be right in your eyes. I want to know that no matter what I've done with these hands or where I've been with these feet or what I've thought with this mind or what I felt with this heart, that God, cleaned me. You've cleaned me. And that's why this is such a big deal. Let's pray. God, I want to lift up to you the Norris family, the Mikalski family. I want to lift up to you Amy and Martin's God, I want to lift up to you these families, these people, these, these men, these women, and these children who are going to come forward yearning to be clean. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on that cross to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness, to pay the price for our sin, to take our judgment upon yourself. I want to thank you for pouring out your grace, for treating us with mercy when we don't deserve it, we want to thank you, God, that even though you are holy and that we are not, that of your accord you make us holy so that we can come into your presence. I want to pray for each of us standing here, sitting here, that, God, we would remember that you've died for us too, that your mercy knows no bounds, no matter where we have been or what we have done or what we have thought or what we have felt.
your grace is powerful enough to wash us from the inside out. Forgive us, God, for the times we take it for granted. Forgive us, God, for the times we think we're entitled. Forgive us, God, for the times that we think it's something for someone else to worry about but no longer pertains to me. May none of us here, God, be guilty of taking that for granted. Lord, thank you for dying and rising. Thank you for making us clean. God, we pray. Amen.